Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 9, and we continue in the study of Jesus having given sight to a man who was born blind. So we pick up this morning in verse 8, and we'll read through verse 34. John 9, 8 through 34. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself." His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. This morning, so that you and I would believe more deeply, more firmly, that we would be helpful to others, that they too would believe, we see in this 
text that while Jesus gives sight to the blind, the unbeliever remains in the dark. There is a difference between what it means to be a believer and what it means to be an unbeliever. There is a drastic difference. And perhaps the most effective methods of Satan to be involved in the false conversion of many, many people is to blur the lines that those who in fact are unbelievers would be convinced that they are believers by faulty criteria. The most obvious in our day and age is the idea of asking Jesus into your heart. The idea is simply completely foreign to the Scripture, and yet you, among many, many thousands and thousands of people, have heard that so many times. There have probably been times in the past where you've been persuaded to believe based on the manipulation of someone who took that idea and superimposed it upon the Bible, particularly in the book of Revelation, where we are told that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And there is not one shred of evangelism in that passage. That's speaking to a church that's gone off the rails, much like the church of Galatia, to whom Paul said, who has bewitched you? There is no evangelism in the idea of Jesus standing at the door of the unbeliever and knocking. And so that idea, because it seems to be sanitized or sanctified by taking a, one Bible verse and superimposing it upon the idea, has led to just literally thousands and thousands of people being massively confused about what it means to be a Christian. Rather than looking at the criteria in the Scripture that the person who is set apart by God unto salvation is actually set apart, right? His life reveals a passion for righteousness. He hungers for righteousness. He hungers for the salvation of the lost. He pleads with God on behalf of those whom he loves that God would reconcile unbelievers unto himself rather than having a haughty spirit of hatred and bitterness toward the unbeliever who he thinks should just act better. That's really what it comes down to. Acknowledging that God has done a work of grace and being thankful, being humbled by the work that God has done. So desirous then of being a vessel by which God would do that work in others. So the believer wants to walk by the Spirit. He wants to honor the Lord. He wants to obey the commands of the Scripture. He sees the law of God, the commands of God, the precepts of God as protective for his life, as the blessings, not only in that by obeying those commands you experience blessing, but in obeying those commands you experience blessing. You're not simply wanting to say or willing to say, well, you know, this is hard, obeying God is hard, but I know, I know it'll be better in the end. No, no, that's true. But that's not the heart of the faithful believer. The heart of the faithful believer says, I love him because he first loved me. And so honoring him with what he has commanded for me to do is a blessing for me in the moment. When I do it, I find joy in bringing joy to him. And so those who are involved spiritually in the lives of other people, right? Those who are discipling, not just pastors and 
teachers, but those who are faithful Christians involved in investing their own lives into others find their own joy completed by the completing joy of the person they're discipling. You see that from Paul, you see that from Peter, you see that from John. Really, you see that from every believer. If you read through 1 John, you see this idea of children, younger believers, and older men. You see that in Titus 2. You see that in 2 Timothy 2. Older, mature believers pouring into younger believers. And, and how is their joy made complete? Not by making more money, not by having more friends, not by having more things, but by seeing the maturing believer maturing. Now, test yourself. Is that, beloved, what brings you the utmost joy? Years ago, when I was associate pastor in a church with a friend that I had known for many years, when I first got to this church, I didn't know much about the church at all. Um, they actually hired me to be the school principal, but I was on the pastoral staff at the same time. The pastor of that church kept telling me, Todd, one day you're going to realize in this church what most parents are committed to is the hope that their kids won't get hooked on drugs and won't get pregnant in their teens. Are your interests for your children the equivalent of hoping that they won't have sex out of marriage? Or if they do, that let's hope they don't get pregnant? Or that they live a life of apparent reasonability? You know, the common phrase is productive members of society. Think about that. Think deeply about that. You can imagine for these parents who loved their son, who was born blind, they might have thought, what an immense disadvantage our son is born with. Maybe they thought, let's just hope that he can maybe survive by begging. Or maybe they thought, let's strengthen him to overcome the disability, the roadblock. Either way, he became a beggar. Whatever their intent was, the extent of his life was to sit and ask others to make his way. I'm not being critical of his parents. I don't know anything about what led to that. I just know that that's what it came down to. So my point is to say that in the moment that he received sight, you can be certain that life changed for them. It's not all good. Again, not knowing what was in their hearts because the text doesn't tell us much. We can know this, the longing in your heart, the longing in my heart for those in whom we have influence ought not to be physical sight. It ought to be spiritual sight. It ought to be that they would be able to see without opening their eyes, that they would long for the truths of God in such a way that as they see them, they receive them, and they do so with humility, with ears that long to hear, with eyes that hope to see, with minds that long to be renewed by the increasingly deep truths of the person of God. That's what we ought to hope for. And so in what we typically refer to as your so that statement, we've said it this way. We would hope this morning that you and I would believe more firmly, that we would believe in the truths of God more firmly, particularly the truths of the Son of God. Why? That we would be helpful to others. I would hope that you'd be praying right now, Lord, help me to be a faithful discipler 
I didn't say a majestic standard-setting discipler, but just one who legitimately finds pouring his or her life into others to be the primary task of spiritual involvement. That's what your life ought to come down to. You know, If you're not in that rhythm yet, then don't be the person who gets to the grave and says, man, I never got started. <sighs> I kept thinking, you know, I'd go on vacation, I'd be energized, and I'd come back, and I'd find somebody, and I'd pour into them. Don't do that. Talk to your family group shepherd today, or if you're not yet plugged into a family group, then just get started. That same pastor that shared those words with me uh, that I mentioned earlier, I spent a lot of time with him, and he had a big impact on my life. And one of the things that I remember him saying that so impacted me, and I, I probably think about this every day, he would say, you don't know that you're going to be called to be a missionary. If you are, that'd be tremendous. But what if you're not? Does that make you a lesser believer somehow? And so he talked about this idea that faithfulness levels the playing field. Isn't that great? Isn't that encouraging? You know, that you might be thinking, oh, I've blown it. I, man, I wasted all these years. I've wasted all this time. I've never gotten to a rhythm of a quiet time. Or if I have, it's legalistic or... Even if it's not legalistic, it's great. Still, I've turned down opportunities I probably should have taken. You've got all these, oh, I wish I had phrases in your life. And that's not necessarily wrong because if it's true, you probably need to deal with that. But today, what you can do beyond that is just say, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful. I don't need to be great. In fact, we aren't called to be great. We're called to suffer. We're called to be less. We're called to be low. God will exalt us in his good timing and by his decree in his grace. Four things I want you to see this morning. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you. You don't necessarily need to write them down because I'm, I'm going to repeat them as I go. But I want, to see, I want you to see four realities in this text. It's a lengthy text for us, especially in light of the fact that we spent two Sundays on seven verses. But I believe what happens here in this passage is that in the narrative... The Lord gives us kind of the rolling effect of how all this unfolds, whereas, as I think you know, in verses 1 through 7, there was a major doctrinal issue on display in narrative fashion that in my heart I felt like we needed to spend substantial time on. So I think we'll get through this, and you're laughing inside, I know, and out loud. But I think we'll get through this. I want you to see these four things. I want you to see, number one, the doubt and distrust in the people. I want you to see the disbelief and division in the Pharisees, the delight and distress in the parents, and then the determination and dismissal of the seeing man. So like I said, you, you don't need to have written those down because I'll give them to you as we go. And if you choose to write them down, you'll have time to do so. So the first thing I want you to see, really from verses 8 through 13, is the doubt and distrust in the people. It's glaringly obvious. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, right? What's the point there? They knew the facts. They'd seen him as a beggar. But they were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. So you see division brewing even amongst these people, but they're doubting and distrusting. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were convinced it is he. Others said, no. 
but he is like him. There's major doubt right there, looking reality in the face and denying it. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. He pretty much does a play-by-play of what we just read about the miracle that Jesus performed. They said to him, verse 12, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And so you see this major distrust. Well, we'll take you to the official, the authority, and we'll let them deal with you. You know, don't be that person. Don't be that person that can't deal with reality when you're looking it in the face. Sure, you want help. I mean, everybody needs spiritual assistance, spiritual leadership. Everybody needs that. That's not what they were looking for, though. They didn't want to believe what had happened. They despised this man. And in despising him, they wanted to maintain that despisal. So let's take him to those who can really sort this out. Second thing I want you to see is the disbelief and division in the Pharisees in verses 14 through 19. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees, again, asked him how he had received his sight. Now, stop there for a moment. I encourage you, if you weren't here with us, or maybe even if you were, if you're wondering, what is the whole issue with the Sabbath? The accusation in John 5 was that Jesus violated the Sabbath by healing a man. And the ultimate reality is that Jesus, being the Lord of the Sabbath, can't violate the Sabbath. He created it for his purposes. And so we kind of distilled that whole matter down to this. Jesus does what he wants. But that's not to say that Jesus somehow violates the law. You ever heard people default into that idea? Well, God can do whatever he wants, dismissing clear doctrine that you're pointing out in the Bible as if God might violate that doctrine. That's not what we're saying. God will not violate his word. Jesus has assured us he came not to abolish the law. There were Sabbath laws. He didn't come to abolish them. He came to fulfill them, and he did. He did. He is the Sabbath rest. You say, well, how does that work itself out? Were people finding themselves resting in the way that they thought the Sabbath would bring rest? Well, ultimately, yes, if they thought rightly about the Sabbath. But that Jesus provides rest is ultimately an eternal issue. But the peace that you and I have, the peace that you and I have, if we have it, is well defined in Romans 5. It's the peace that has come in the moment that the war between God and man has been eliminated. That results in desire to live in that peace. Not to have the peace of the avoidance of conflict, but rather to go into the conflict with a peaceful spirit, resting in the Lord and trusting in Him. That's not what the Pharisees wanted. They deliberately misunderstood the Sabbath so that they could misuse the concept to tie up burdens too heavy for people to bear. Again, Galatians is probably the best commentary on exposing and extracting legalism 
The book of Galatians written to believers who had lost their way. They had been bewitched. They'd been bamboozled. And so these Pharisees who are not yet believers and resting completely in legalistic works, therefore imposing that upon others, you must do this. Look at all that we've done. Now you do these things. No interest in telling people to believe. No interest in calling people to reject their belief in themselves, abandon all self-hope and self-help, and rest in the person of the Savior. The Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. All the blind man knew was how he had been blessed. Is he a believer at this point? Probably not. I'll tell you why next week. But at this point, there's no reason to be convinced that this man is yet converted. All he knows is that Jesus stepped in, and now he sees. Now he sees. You may have seen the video of uh, some folks who were born colorblind. You've seen these videos recently uh, where someone uh, somehow through surgery has been given the ability to see colors, and they can't talk. They're so overwhelmed with the reality. I, I don't know what happened to my phone, but right before I went to the Shepherds Conference, all of a sudden it went black and white. And you know what you normally think when something goes wrong with your phone. Oh, I accidentally changed the settings, and I have no idea how to change them back. Well, my 14-year-old son assures me that that's not what happened because he went through it. You know, that's what you do these days, right? You go to your teenager. Because um, I tried. I'm like, I don't know. Uh, he says, no, Dad, there's no way to change that. So I don't know what happened, but let me just tell you, life is different when your phone no longer sees in color. <laughs> I feel like I'm in a Jimmy Stewart movie from the 40s. <laughs> For folks who've never seen color. Now, you and I can't imagine that. I'll give you a, a living example of this. My son, Cole, was born with strabismus. He has no idea what it's like to have depth perception. If you lose depth perception by losing an eye, you know what it's like to have had it and not have it. Cole, bless his heart, has learned to overcome it by working hard to develop the ability to catch a football. It's amazing. I mean, think of it. If you've not ever done this experiment, do it. Cover one eye. And I do this. I basically read with one eye. That's a long story. I'll tell you later. But I read with one eye closed. And when I do, I go to write on something, and it's like, Am I there yet? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? Am I there? Okay, I'm there. When the pen hits the paper, I'm like, okay, I'm finally there. I don't know. I can't tell. For a person who has been blind his whole life, and now he can see. The majesty of that is inexplicable, and all he knows is that there is a drastic change in his life. And this pre-illustrates what I believe does happen to this man that we will talk about next week. For the person who never acknowledges his blindness, he doesn't have any interest in being thankful. He just wants to take credit for his ability to see when in fact he can't see. So what this man knows about himself nurtures the disbelief and the division that you see in the Pharisees, and really others, but primarily in the Pharisees. Uh, back to the middle of verse 16, others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Come on. The man who gave this man born blind the ability to see, he's a sinner? Are you serious? 
And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. Get off my back. I guess he's a prophet. So what's happening here is a little bit at a time, this man's belief is being populated with truth. A little bit at a time, he's thinking, well, I didn't see, now I see. I don't know uh, who he is, but perhaps he's someone who speaks truth. Prophets speak truth. Prophets represent God. Prophets deal with difficult realities, with eternal solutions. I was blind. Now I see. Maybe he's a prophet. So the disbelief and the division amongst the Pharisee grows. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind. They're choosing to deny essential historical community reality. Anyone could have told him, I've known the guy his whole life. Trust me. No, we don't believe it. We don't believe it. I liken this to when I first came to know the Lord and I was attempting to share the gospel with my mom. She didn't like it. She wanted to believe that the religious environment in which I had been raised was enough. And I said to her one day, Mom, don't you see a difference in me? And she said, yeah, and I don't like it. That's what's happening. They see the difference, and they don't like it because it attacks the pride of their pharisaical legalism in which this man had been steeped. They didn't want to believe that their religious efforts weren't enough, that their religious efforts would have steered him wrong, possibly. And here he's turning to the one who apparently is a prophet, apparently has some ability to do things in people's lives that make a distinct difference. They did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So we've looked at the doubt and distrust in the people. We've looked at the disbelief and division in the Pharisees. Now I'd like for you to see the delight and distress in the parents. The delight and the distress in the parents. It's sadly and unnecessarily a bittersweet moment. Again, you can imagine for these folks that their hearts are bursting with joy that their son who has never been able to see can see, and yet it's grossly tainted by the religious legalism of others who want to spoil the moment in their pride. Verse 20 says, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. And at this point, there's a little bit of a dodge on their part, and we know that because the Scripture tells us there is. They say he will speak for himself. Well, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. 
And you can, I think, sympathize to some degree with their fear. This was their life. As a Jew, Judaism was kind of your life. There wasn't an alternative religion down the street. You couldn't visit the Pentecostal church or the Baptist church if Judaism didn't work out. They would have been excommunicated. They would have been alienated. And so they're frightened. They're they're fearful. And again, it's a bittersweet reality that in the moment that their, their dear son, who has never been able to see, can now see. Can you imagine the moments that they spent together? Certainly there would have been some jubilation over, wow, those are clouds. That's what you were trying to explain to me. Well, that's what you look like. Oh my goodness, this is, this is how f- I know what it smells like. Now I, I see what it looks like, the diversity, the beauty, the, the coloration, God's kindness to me, to be able to see these things and having never been able to see them, but attempting to understand them because people all my life have tried to explain to me what they look like, but here I am, I'm enjoying it. And his parents, his parents certainly would have been enjoying that equal with them. You know that they just wept and wept and wept and wept. You've experienced that as parents in the moment when your children have been infirmed with great difficulty. I can remember many of those. Maybe the most recent in my mind is the most recent, and that's when Silas had an earache. (laughs) Oh, I'm thinking, Lord, please give this poor little guy some relief. You know, hour after hour just wailing over the pain. You know, we're looking online, and we're going to try this, we'll try that, and nothing's working. And finally, you know, literally after hours, the weeping stops and he goes to sleep. And we just, you know, literally weeping with joy. Oh, Father, thank you so much for relieving my son. And this is what these parents would have been experiencing. And yet it was stained with the legalism of the religious leaders who lorded their leadership over them, tying up burdens far, far too heavy to bear. You remember in Galatians 6 where Paul, after Paul has really undressed faulty legalism and gently taken the Galatians up to the point where he would say to them, now, bear the burden of legalism together. Bear the sin burden together. Don't let this legalistic mindset in which you've lived for so long be something that you attempt to take on alone. Don't let others attempt to take it on alone. Bear the burden of that sin together, and as much as his parents would have wanted to help him, they couldn't, and so they said, ask him. He's of age. Talk to him. So certainly they were delighted, but they would have been greatly distressed. How tragic that spiritual leaders would manipulate people in such a way. Well, the fourth thing I want you to see is the determination and dismissal of the seeing man. The determination and dismissal of the seeing man. Verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. We 
are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. Don't you love it when the Bible validates sarcasm? Man, I do. Spirit-filled sarcasm is good for the soul. If you haven't read 1 Corinthians 4, Paul utilizes it in an amazing way. Now, you, you and I got to be careful about sarcasm because sinful sarcasm is never good. It's an oversimplification, I know. Sinful things are bad, not sinful things are good. Fair enough? But the Lord uses this sarcasm in this man to show the Pharisees how spiritually dead they are. This is an amazing thing. What often comes to my mind when I think of this is the professor who spent over two decades teaching people in Israel, the geography of Israel, claiming to believe in the Trinity and yet ultimately rejecting the Trinity, specifically the deity of Christ. And one of the articles that was posted on his Facebook page said 45 verses that are wrongly interpreted to speak of the deity of Jesus. Now, friends, when you've got 45 verses that for most people who read them say, oh, wow, look at that, Jesus is God. And you've got to go through each of those verses and somehow explain that Jesus is not God. It's probably better to put your spiritual hat aside for a time. and Trust someone who's actually taught through these passages to explain what they really mean by what they plainly say. But this is the work that the Lord does in the life of the false convert, the one who professes to know God but clearly doesn't. He looks at the plain truth of Scripture, and the harder it gets, the harder his heart gets. His heart is hardened by the harder truths, and he more vehemently dismisses them the more faithfully they are presented. And that is most certainly What's happening here with these manipulative spiritual leaders by saying to him, give glory to God. Call the God-man a sinner. That's a little ironic. Of course, they don't want to believe that he is the God-man. They've already rejected that reality. So again, go back with me to uh, verse 30. The man answered, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. He's already said he's the bread of heaven that comes from heaven. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Are you serious? The miracle worker. Miracles were not happening. Not only were they not common, they were not happening. They hadn't happened for 400 plus years. In fact, according to the blind man, it's never happened in history that someone born blind had been given sight. He's making somewhat of a medical statement there. Is that true? Apparently so. We have no record of anything like that happening prior to this. A man born blind being given sight. But you know what's interesting? They don't refute it. The Pharisees don't point out that they think he's wrong about that. But their problem is that they're choosing to disbelieve. They're choosing to disbelieve but this man remains determined. I'm not saying that he's some bold spiritual firefighter. He doesn't display himself that way at all. He doesn't come off as he's spiritually great. 
certainly not in a prideful way and not even in a humble way. He doesn't know that about himself. Again, I'm not convinced that he's a believer at this point, but certainly he's at least, as an unbeliever, being honest about the deity of Christ. He's being honest about what is plainly true about this person who gave him sight. He goes on to say this, and this is quite an indictment on the Pharisees. We know that God does not listen to sinners, and this should be reminiscent for you of Psalm 66, 18, where David makes the same statement. David says, while I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear my prayers. That'll remind you of Peter's words in 1 Peter 3, 7. The man who doesn't live with his wife in an understanding way, his prayers are hindered. You could say they don't get through the ceiling. The man wonders why in the world he's not spiritually blessed. Talk to me about how you treat your wife. That's a starting place. So he's saying all that. He's taking all that theology about prayer, and he is implementing it verbally in the lives of the spiritual leaders of the day. You, as far as I can tell, are bankrupt. This isn't going to go well for him in a practical way. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. But we do know that the one who worships God and does his will is a man to whom God listens. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He could do nothing. And then the dismissal. Get used to this. Get used to this. Those who are committed to their disbelief, you know, read what the word says, reject it. No, it can't possibly mean that. Get used to this. Get used to the fact that those who revel in their disbelief will dismiss you when you bring up truth. They'll dodge the truth and they'll do everything they can to draw attention to other things to discredit you. And this is exactly what they do. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. Well, Jesus had already said he hadn't been. Jesus had already pointed out it wasn't his sin, it wasn't even his parents' sin. And they say, and you would teach us. See, that's the arrogance of the pretend Bible student. You're going to teach me? And what do they do? They cast him out. They dismiss him. Now, they could officially, in a tangible way, dismiss him from the synagogue. And it had already been reported that that's what they would do. They had said they would do that, and that's exactly what happened here. Praise God for the sensitivity and the kindness and the gentleness and the love of our Savior to go find him. You need, and I need, to remember and rest in the reality that truth divides. Truth divides. Luke 12, 49, you see this in 
maybe the most colorful, tangible way. Luke 12, 49. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's not talking about his water baptism here. He's talking about that which would lead into his death and his resurrection. The term baptism meaning identification, association. It's coming. That which will bring fire down from heaven is coming. And I'm distressed until I absorb that fire, that wrath for mankind. Verse 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Is that what you think? No. I tell you, but rather division. So we've titled the message, Jesus, creator of division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Back to Galatians, the dilemma in which Paul found himself, not only with the bewitching of the Galatians, but the separation with the other apostles, certainly would have led to some distress for Paul. But this is how he deals with it. Verse 10 of Galatians 1, this is after he's talked about the fact that they've been bamboozled by a false gospel. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, that's a hopeful statement for you and for me when we are subject to the criticism and persecution of unsaved family, friends, co-workers, especially those who perceive themselves or at least want to be perceived as spiritual people, like the Pharisees. Galatians 2.1 Paul says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See what he's saying? In all the legalism that was going on in the church of Galatia, he said Titus wasn't circumcised. We didn't give in to the legalistic mandate that somebody be circumcised. There was no need for that. But what did we do? We stood rigidly on the gospel. Why? Fear of God. We refused to fear man. Then down in verse 7, or actually go back to verse 5. Why did he do that? We remained committed to the truth of the gospel that it might be preserved for you. That was always the heart of Paul. It was never about Paul's you know, spiritual growth. It was always about being increasingly useful to others. That the power of the gospel would be displayed in his life, in his mouth, in his heart, in his ministry, in his shepherding, in his discipling. Why? That those in whom he had influence would experience the power of the freedom of the gospel to throw off legalism. 
Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when, listen to this, verse 9, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. That's the freedom of the former legalist on display. The person whose life was about stuff that he did. You remember that section in Philippians 3 where Paul takes it all and he runs it through a spiritual shredder? It's all worthless. It's dung. Everything I did means nothing. But it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ to which I cling. His death and his resurrection. Oh, that I might be known by that. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, that it's the cross of Christ by which he hopes to be known. The cross of Christ. But that would be the distillation of who he is. Take heart. Take heart if you're in this predicament of experiencing delight and distress all at the same time. Maybe you're seeing those who've come to know Christ grow, and there are those who are dismissing the significance of it. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're growing. There are those who are saying, well, but I don't like that. Well, it could be that in their hatred of righteousness, their hatred of the truth, their hatred of Christ, but their pretense that they love all those things, show that hatred as you display those things. Take heart. You remember in John 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. These are men with whom he grew up, and women. His brothers and sisters, his younger brothers and sisters who rejected him. John 4, 44 for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Matthew 13, 57, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Take heart. Mark 3, verse 20 just after Jesus appointed the 12 as his disciples, it says, then he went home. Listen closely. He's just established his crew. These are the ones through whom the message of God is going to be communicated for the church down through the centuries. This is a monumental moment. Mark 3.20. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. That's the division that Jesus came to bring. Someone in the home actually becomes a Christian. And the legalist starts making things even more difficult. You must be out of your mind. All this time you're spending at the church. All this time in the Bible. All this money you're giving. 
further down in Mark 3, verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them. Now, this is bold, humble confidence. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. See, that's what you and I say when we look at each other. Here are my mother and my brothers when our family members reject our spiritual growth. They don't believe it. They don't believe it. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 2 Corinthians 4, 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. This is a premier passage for the growing Christian who really longs to see other people know, come to know Christ. This is the commission you've been given. It's the ministry of reconciliation. Do you love how he says that? Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, not by our own achievement, not by our own choice, not by our own doing, not by our own prayer, but by the mercy of God, we have this ministry, and we don't lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, that's how you can maintain the ability to not lose heart. It's in being willing to believe what you know to be true as plainly stated in God's word. Listen to this in Acts 1, 14. All these, listen to this. This is hope. This is hope. You ready for this? Acts 1, 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Oh, does it make you want to jump? His brothers who weren't believers, who mocked him, who said he was insane. And here we are in Acts 1, the second generation of the church. Church is budding, it's flowering, it's beginning to blossom. People are devoting themselves to prayer. They're doing it together. And who is among them? Those who are now his mother and his brothers. Biologically, his mother and brothers, but Jesus says, no, you're not. You're not my mother and my brothers. These are my mother and brothers. And now, in heaven, he can say, my mother and my brothers have come to know me. Go with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians 7. 
verse 10. To the married I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. That's simply Paul's way of emphasizing this is directly from God himself, from probably the Lord Jesus. I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Listen carefully, those of you who have unbelieving children, and you think it's because your spouse is not saved. Listen carefully. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. You see that? Paul is pointing to the hope for those who are in Christ that their kids would be made clean. That their children would, in fact, be reconciled to God through Christ. Your unbelieving spouse is no roadblock. In fact, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. It's a beautiful contrast. As you trust the Lord, you live faithfully before the Lord. Your unbelieving spouse who pretends to live faithfully before the Lord eventually results in your kids seeing the difference. They know who to follow. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. He's speaking to those who are unequally yoked. It's by the Lord's use of your faithfulness that they've become clean. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? There's even hope for the unbelieving spouse. Looking around the room, I can see a few conversions that have resulted because of faithful, unequally yoked Christian believers. Now imagine Jesus' younger half-brother James growing up in the same home with him, sleeping in the same room eating the same food, eating off the same table, probably eating off the same plate, wrestling, playing, living life together as small children growing into young adulthood. James rejects him as his other brothers do. But in James 2.1, James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Is that not what you want for your unbelieving family members? Or would you rather just settle into some sort of default security of pretending they know the Lord because they say they do? Just hoping it'll one day stick. Wouldn't you rather be the witness of someone like the half-brother James who says, we're to show no partiality but to hold firmly to our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Mary, Luke 1, 47, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. At one point, she had rejected him after this prayer. You know, at one point, she thought he was insane. 
But eventually, she trusts him. She faces reality. She lives in that reality. Psalm 146, 8 says, The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord does that. The Lord can do that. Did the Lord do that with you? The Lord can do that with your unsaved spouse. The Lord can do that with your children, even if they're out of the home. He can do that. So what do you do in the meantime? Here's what you do in the meantime. 1 Peter 2, 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In a moment, we'll sing together my favorite hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And this is what you ought to be thinking, not just while we're singing this morning, but while you're attempting to minister to those who have seen the blinders come off of you. You've been given sight, and they either deny it, or they say, I don't know, ask him. The writer of the hymn says, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou be my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father, I the true son. Thou in me dwelling and I with thee one. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High king of heaven, my treasure thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joy, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Father, we plead with you that our Savior would be our vision, that when we would open our eyes, we would see him and we would acknowledge that it is he who opened our eyes. And at whatever stage we are in, in this process of growing to understand him better, may we never deny that it is he and he alone who can and does open eyes. May we drink deeply from the well of his loving kindness that heals, that we would rest entirely in him, that we would find determination, even when dismissed by the pharisaical false convert, that we would simply remain true to what is true, not with arrogance or anger, but that we would entrust ourselves to you who judges justly, that while he, being reviled, did not revile in return, but he bore our sins on the cross, that we who are sheep, while we often wander, would return to you, 
that we would return to the Savior, the Lord of glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.